Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. Hello and welcome back. This is part two of my interview with Martin Carr. We're picking up again on the discussion around Jealous Guy. that John told him that Jealous Guy was about him. And I just wonder when Paul learned that. Yeah, you know? I that as well. I mean, you know what, what I mean? He, yeah, oh, absolutely. I, I don't know how he could hear that without realising it was about him. I mean, I don't know how, uh, I don't know how that would work. It's so obviously about him. It doesn't make sense otherwise. <laughs> it's the whole breakup story. The whole breakup series is basically in that song, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When you see Paul, when the um, photographers go up to mm -hmm. the farm to try and find him, he looks, yeah. he looks awful. You know, I know it's not a long period, but I don't think I've ever seen him look like that before. He looks really terrible. Kind of puffy? And uh, unlike Paul, kind of puffy, but just, just the joy has been kicked out of him. Any positivity seems to have been kicked out of him. Oh, know. I agree. I mean, the thing that's interesting to me that I'm starting to think about more and more is the fact that to this day, Paul doesn't understand it, mm -hmm. which actually gives a lot of information to me. There was something, there was something inconsistent in John's behavior. In other words, there was nothing that would have led, like he doesn't understand why John's behavior became what it was because it was inconsistent. You know what I mean? It suggests that there wasn't a gradual coming apart, you know, because I think that if that had happened, Paul would be like, well, yeah, I get it. But for 50 years, he's been trying to explain it. And sometimes it's Klein and sometimes it's Yoko and sometimes it's John. And, and in this lyrics book, he's like, you know, he says that dear friend could have been called what the fuck man. And, you know, he, <laughs> Paul doesn't understand it. So that means something happened in John's mind to me. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it was this thing about, you know, John just played a game that went too far and Klein was a step too far, you know. That's the whole mm -hmm. premise of our breakup series is that it was a game, that it was a game that spun out of control. And I really do think yeah. it, it is that. And, you know, even John, John's interviewed in 1971, and he, he sounds like he's so confused. Like, how did this happen? And it's like, it yeah. happened because you were playing mind games and you never talked to Paul. I think that, like you said, John's so in his head, thinking Paul's so strong. And, and you know, John gave this interview that I did a whole episode about to Barry Miles, where he talks about, I was going through murder when Paul was full of confidence. And I yeah. think that says a lot, you know, he sees Paul as so strong that he felt like he needed all these people. And I think Paul doesn't feel that strong and doesn't understand why John's doing this. You yeah, know? because Paul, it's just a natural progression for him. You know, they got better and better over the years. And 
and somewhere John kind of just got stuck because I don't think he works at it as hard as Paul did. You know, he uh, he didn't get up in the morning and just start playing piano <laughs> the way that John's, you know, the way that Paul did. It's just funny when Paul, I just think it's funny when Paul brings Linda into the studio and immediately ditches her with <laughs> these creepy men <laughs> to go and play piano. Like he hasn't been playing piano at home. It's like, Paul, you were playing piano when we were having sex last night and when we had breakfast this morning. You played piano in the car on the way down. He's like, yeah, but you haven't seen me on this piano. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, But here's a question for you. Did that make Paul more advanced? than John at this point? Like, is it in John's head that Paul's further ahead? Or is Paul I think just... so. I think, I think um, as Paul's songs are becoming more and more, just having that kind of instant classic thing and, and, and he's doing it on his own, pretty much, you know, that John is, yeah, he just thinks that he's been left behind a bit. I think because all all that stuff that they did together you know stopping touring was a really big thing for John I think because it meant that they weren't because that made him work you know he was with yes. Paul all the time Paul yes. works all the time so <laughs> yeah, John yeah. worked all the time yeah yeah uh and when they stopped touring John just kind of drifted off into his you know his dreams and his uh in his own head but he came up with like strawberry fields forever is what he did in his dreamy yeah. time you know so he was working when he wrote that you know when they're talking about you know when we were in spain we got the navy or something and yeah, Ringo yeah, was like, i was there john you didn't you didn't get the navy <laughs> john i love ringo um yeah yeah I think people would say, well, John didn't even like Let It Be because he said, well, that may as well have been a wing song. But to me, that suggests that the exact point that you're talking about is that him saying that it could have been a wing song is to say it had none of me in it. You know, yes. that- I think I think that he he's feeling that because he needs help with his songs. He needs to he has bits and he needs Paul to arrange, you know, and uh, he doesn't know what he wants George to play and he doesn't know what he wants Ringo to play you know mm. whereas Paul is just becoming more and more independent I think yeah well uh, you know one of the things that uh, Ray Connolly said was that when Paul came up with his album John said to him oh he's been practicing yes. doing that for years I mean that's a big insight <laughs> yeah. you know that John's like oh I know he's practicing to do that yeah although you know John's got three solo albums in by that point i mean they're well not, yeah you know, they're not really <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think that one of the issues john has is that like john's songs are always so elevated by the production you know like one of my favorite songs is i am the walrus and mm-hmm. you know like i love the basic song but what george martin brought to that yeah is so he incredible so, sinis- so sinister and, he um, does creepy i think john would appreciate you know george martin was so good at at capturing the mood the inner kind of spirit of the song I think um, his chords are quite basic, quite droney, 
and also he doesn't have an idea of what he wants. Yeah. So, so people can play. Just so people can just fill in all those gaps, you know. And, yeah. Uh, you know, because I think he kind of resents Paul for that, doesn't he? That we always go to town on my songs, but Paul knows what he wants from his songs. Yeah. Because Penny Lane, on the other side, is, is just so beautiful. Um, and in some ways, just as experimental, but, you know, Paul knew what he wanted and there would have been no room really for John there, except maybe lyrically, you know, if Paul mm-hmm. was stuck for something. I don't know if I said this before, uh, um, Nina Simone, baseline to Penny Lane, it's the same as uh, My Baby Just Cares For Me by Nina Simone. I've never heard anyone say it. It's just it's exactly the same to me. And which came out just a couple of months before I looked it up. I think he was probably, maybe he was playing it on the piano and... Played with knows. it? Mm, yeah. Interesting. Well, the thing about John and the fact that George Martin and Paul were so important to his songs potentially made John kind of insecure. Yeah. Yeah. He always, always goes back to like this rock and roll thing that has to be raw and you know stripped back and uh <laughs> right which i am the walrus is anything but as is you know strawberry fields forever the, yeah the, 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 the basic track to i am the walrus is great it's really nasty as well it's mm. got this really nasty organ on it it's an organ or guitar it's quite it's a fantastic song you know paul can never write something like that in a million years He's not that person. It's not his, you know, same way that John couldn't write The Longer Winding Road. It's just not in him. Um, it's, it's a fantastic song. Yeah, definitely um, one of my favourites. Yeah. I listen to Dear Friend. I listen to Wildlife. I like some of it. I like, well, I like quite a lot of it, but the song Wildlife I loved, which I never heard I love before. it too. I don't really understand Dear Friend. It's a bit Interesting. too... Uh, I need to listen to it more, but I mean, lyrically, I don't really, I, it's a bit too, um, I don't quite grasp what he's trying to say. Well, one of the things that I find interesting about that album is uh, I can't understand a lot of what Paul's saying. Dear Friend is funny because he can't express himself. It's so short and he's angry. I don't find Dear Friend a sweet song, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's confused, it's heartbroken, it's angry, you know. I, I don't yeah. get all these people that are like, oh, it's such a sweet song. No, it's not a sweet song. No, no, I got all the emotion, but none, re- none of the meaning. Yeah. Uh, so maybe the meaning is in the emotion. Yes. Uh, which is quite poor, I guess. I think Paul can't quite express what he wants to say. He's so confused by John at this point, you know? Yeah. Paul can't understand why John has done what he's done. And... I think maybe John doesn't even understand it. But to your earlier point, like let's go back to this point because I think what happened in 68 is important. I think something's running through an idea. Something is eating John up. And I suspect either he never totally communicated it to Paul or they had some kind of conversation where John wasn't clear. They both reacted and neither of them knows what actually the other was talking about, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah uh, it would have been something that, that John felt really strongly about, but yep. Paul just couldn't grasp it because they couldn't talk plainly yeah. to each other. You know, it's all yeah, code yeah, yeah. and ESP. <laughs> <laughs> 
And that's a recipe for disaster when people love each other, you know, and it's, it's so heightened. When you look at John's song, uh, I Know, I Know from 73, it's like by 73, he sort of figured out that maybe Paul couldn't meet or whoever, we don't know if this is about Paul, but you know, given that he starts it with the riff from I've Got a Feeling and it, it, I know, I know. Yes, I know, I know is apparently what they said to each other when they were on acid. They just kept saying, I know. (laughs) So anyways, he's got the song and he says, I know and I'm sorry, but I never could speak my mind. And then the next verse is, but I could never read your mind. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that that reflects potentially what we're talking about is this like, I thought I could read your mind, but I couldn't and I could never say what I wanted. Again, it's, it's uh, one of those songs that doesn't make sense if it's not about Paul. I know. Uh, I know, I know. <laughs> 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 yeah, it just, um, he definitely, he definitely um, believed that they must have had some pretty intense acid <laughs> <laughs> experiences. Yep. And like I said, Yoko is separate from whatever John and Paul have. Like their issue is separate and then Yoko comes in and you know, she's a romantic interest of John's, which is different, but she takes all the attention away from the Paul and John story. So, you know, nobody notices really that they are having this crisis. But I think the thing is, is that we read Paul because Paul looks anxious and Paul says like, you're gonna be on the stage. And we look at John and John looks like he, He doesn't look as hurt by Paul, and yet John's pain is manifested in the fact that he can't sit without a girlfriend and he's doing heroin. And for some reason, that that isn't seen as John being in pain, you know, or maybe it's not attributed to Paul. Yeah, if you take Yoko out of the picture and Klein out of the picture, they could, they, it looks like something that would have worked out. Yeah. You know, and, you know, it's easy to say, Yoko didn't break up the Beatles. It's easy to say that Yoko did break up the Beatles. If she wasn't there, it would have been different. There's nothing she did consciously, I don't think. No. And uh, I, I read the other day that I didn't, I didn't know this before that it was um, Derek Taylor that yeah. suggested. That just seems weird to me that someone like Derek Taylor would have any time for someone like Klein. Yeah, Derek brought in Jan Winner. Like, Derek is 100% John's confidant, right? It was Derek that, that built him back up, you know, when he was so yeah. down. Yeah, that, it's like that acid trip that he had, and they had to kind of reconstruct him in the back of his to, limo. Ex- exactly, exactly. It was they put John back together. Um, and Cynthia was freaked out because apparently he went back and was like, we should have a ton of kids. And she was like, <laughs> she was like, what? But John was going through a lot at that time. 
I wanted to ask you about one of the songs, which is only You Can See Me. Now, you yeah. told me a good anecdote about that, you know, that you, you wrote it for Snodgrass. And I absolutely love the song. It sounds like John, you know, the, the subject, the lyrics, it so reflects John's issues. So can you just talk about that song and why you wrote it? It was, um, I, I wrote it for the, um, it didn't appear in the first thing. I think I'd re- I wrote it afterwards, after watching the first thing. And there's, um, there's a bit where he goes into a building for a job interview and, um, he steps towards the lift and there's a, like a security guard outside the lift and John walks backwards into the lift saying, only you can see me. And, um, I just, it just, it just struck a chord with me. Um, it's just very John, not necessarily something he'd say, but very kind of, uh, in the spirit of John. And it's all this thing about being seen, you know, about about looking into, uh, you know, I think people who have identity crisis or identity issues spend a lot of time looking in the mirror as well and just trying to work out who who is this guy? Who is it? So the song was was really trying to um, address that and you know, it was like, you know, I'm a, a fog to my family, a ghost to my friends, whatever it is. And this idea about, you know, you, you, you don't have a sense of yourself. And um, it's like his Look At Me song in India. Um, it's just wanting to be seen. Mm-hmm. And, but then it ties in with the emotional support person because only that person can see me. And it's all, it's all nonsense really it's all in your head because everyone else is just getting on with it and and it just makes it even worse why can't i just be you know like everyone else at the same time knowing you're not like everyone else and kind of liking that as well yeah yeah Uh, yeah that's interesting because i think that's true too i think that that john definitely um loved the feeling that he and yoko too both like the feeling that they were special you know, mm-hmm. and I think that I think John and Paul thought that they were special and they believed in each other, their their tie to each other, and that they were special because they had these abilities, you know. But but yeah. I think you're right but, to put your finger on that. John too. had John had like did to the they both had the high ego. Yep. But John had really incredibly low esteem. Yes. Where Paul had quite high <laughs> self esteem. <Yeah. laughs> uh, so that kind of works out. <laughs> well, it does. Well, it does. Until uh, one thing that you know, I've been a little bit critical about. I think that Paul overemphasizes the breakup because he doesn't want to be blamed for it. But on the other hand, I do mm-hmm. think it was devastating to him. I do think it damaged Paul a little bit. The feeling a bit betrayed, like the three to one scenario, the Klein scenario. Like I think that honestly, yeah. I, I mean, it must have made him question himself. You know. Yeah, because he believed in the in the four of them, and he believed that, you know, he says early on in the film, I think you'll find we're not going abroad because Ringo doesn't want to. That's right. Um, you know, so something that something like that, um, you know, that principle holds true. But then something that's really important, like signing yeah. with this manager guy, 
Yeah. All of a sudden. Majority rules. Oh, maybe nobody else believes that. You know, maybe it was just me. Yeah, I, I found that quite sad, actually. You know, the, the fact that we see repeatedly, George wants this, so we're moving there. John wants Yoko, so we're doing this. You know, yeah. Ringo doesn't want to go abroad. So it seems to be this, like, everybody's got to be on board. And then mm-hmm. Klein comes in, and it's like majority rules. And Paul has consistently stuck to the, the the fact that it it was supposed to be an all or nothing kind of situation. Yeah. You know? And like you said, it was yeah. so important. I don't know. I understand that they didn't want to go with Paul's in-laws, but at least they had good reputations. Or why couldn't they have just kept looking? I know. They said, okay, well, we won't use the Eastmans and we won't use Klein. Let's find yeah. someone yeah. else that we all yeah. like. Yeah. But John signed. Um, and John signed. And George will do whatever John does. I think. Yeah. Especially if Paul doesn't like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I find it that it's hard to reconcile that George and Paul were such good friends before the ban. You know, and they would go on holiday together. and um, Because you never really get that feeling from them that closeness when you see them together um, well, i think sometimes he seems sweet when he's like paul do you want a sandwich paul do you want this he seems like a brother like george sometimes seems like said, a yeah brother. i think your beard suits you man i love that thing. yeah no he does i do think that they have a like you know interestingly during this time george gets really upset because he can't reach paul in the middle of the night and like george actually did go to paul's party after his wedding you know like they have they have some kind of relationship i just don't i just think he does side with john a lot um i don't know because like i think we talked about uh, if george he needs someone on his side when he's got a song yeah you know and if paul doesn't is not showing the interest he'll go over to john yeah um but that doesn't work out very well for him he doesn't really help him with his songs and then he helps john um, you know, trash Paul's reputation uh, and yeah. gets nothing back for it. He's nope. far more let down by John than he is by Paul, I think. Yeah, yeah. But why would George get involved in that? So Paul will... Why would George... Yeah. Um... Well, 100% so Paul will see it. Because I mm-hmm. think that George, George writes a couple songs to Paul on his album, you know, like Run of the Mill or Isn't It a Pity? And Paul probably doesn't even notice they're about him. If George is on John's song, Paul will pay attention. You know, I think I think that's why why George is on it is because he's angry. That's that's the confusing thing. What is George so upset about? I don't know. Yeah, and uh, and everyone thinks when John dies that it's so sad that him and Paul never made up. But it was George and John that were. Uh, you know, estranged at that time. Yeah. Was it because of George's book? Ah, that's one of the reasons. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But also, remember John does that um, questionnaire in like 76 or something, and it it was a word association, and like Paul, and he writes Extraordinary, and George, he writes Lost. Um, Right. I don't know. John never treats Paul like a kid, on the way he treats George. Yeah, yeah. I think that had to do with how they were when they met. Paul was already writing songs and performing songs. Yeah. And you know what I mean? Like, that's just a yeah. difference. 
I don't know, John and Paul just had a chemistry that's different. And I think he always felt locked out of that. And I think he resented both of them for that, you know? I think, I don't think they saw him as an equal uh, in terms of, you know, the songwriting. I think he was yeah. an equal Beatle. Yes, um, that's it. Which would have been a good name important. for a George Harrison solo album. <laughs> equal Beatle. Yeah, but again, yeah. I do think that they think they are the axis around which everything else revolves, you know. But, which, uh, but they are. But that's that's <laughs> the conundrum. They are, you know, because John and Paul are kind of musically in love with each other, you know, like with this, yeah. with Taylor Hawkins dying, you know, there's some quotes between him and Dave Grohl. And they talk about how, like, you know, Taylor says that Dave's his life partner and Dave was saying that he fell in love with Taylor. I mean, that's the kind of thing that I think John and Paul have. And I think it can sound crazy yeah. when we say that, but it's just kind of, it's in love too, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. There are many different kinds of, um, of love, I guess. There are. There are. And I think that's one of the, the reasons why they're so amazing to watch is that not that many people have that kind of love. Mm -hmm. You know, Derek Taylor talked about uh, the Beatles story being like one of the greatest love stories of the 20th century. And I personally think yeah. he's talking about the Beatles and the world. But I also think it's between John. And, I think it's between oh, John and Paul, too. You know? Yeah. OK. Yes, thank you. Look at me Who am I supposed to be? Like, I think John tried to bury it, and it worked, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Only You Can See Me is just a genius song, because we talked about earlier how John is trying so hard in 1968 and 69 to get attention. Yeah. I think he's disappearing, or he thinks he's disappearing. And um, so he's putting on, you know, he's hanging signs around his neck and <laughs> putting, uh, you know, just acting a bit crazy, getting naked. He is. So, like, look at me is, is you know, it, it starts off as maybe him just talking to himself, looking at, yeah. you know, in the mirror. but gets taken to the extreme where, look at me, <laughs> I'm naked. <laughs> and it's just yes. wanting to be seen. Um, uh, yeah, he's like, what more do I have to do? I have no clothes on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think there is part of like, I'm showing you everything and see if you'll walk away. You know, there's kind of this like, it's this testing constantly. Do you do you love me still? All of me, you know. Yeah. But but you're right. There's something like he so needs attention. And Yoko, this is where I think John and Yoko are similar. But you know, something that I think is I'm not sure John, like Yoko, in this this interview that he gives Barry Miles, he says that she said, "I love you for who you are, whatever that is." You know that she was willing to see john and accept him for all of his eccentricities and his ups and downs and i think he loved that that he didn't have to perform maybe but i'm not yeah. sure when he's because they get together and then he does all of this stuff i'm not sure he needs to be seen by yoko 
No, I think I, I do think that she was in a much more privileged position than Paul in that he would have told her all the things that he didn't want to tell Paul mm -hmm. or, or mm -hmm. did want to tell Paul but couldn't. Yeah. And so she became, you know, just something that he could pour all that into. Um, but her seeing him did not make him feel seen. That's my point, is that, yes, she became his 24-7 person. Yeah, because I think that what he poured into her, it just, it, there was no, um, didn't help him in any way because uh, no answers came back. You know, maybe all that came back was what he'd put in and he needs something more. He needs somebody to to see him and say, I see, I recognize you. This is, this is what you are, or this is what is, uh, you know, he needed fixing. And maybe he thought that only Paul could do that somehow, or his relationship with Paul could do that. Because, you know, he, Yoko understood him as, in as much as what he told her and what he told her, he already knew. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So she understood him um, in as much as he understood himself, which wasn't enough, maybe. But she was very supportive and she was there for hanging out, doing drugs and having sex. And, yeah, uh, you know, he needed that all the time. Yeah. I think they're quite similar. She will play this role, but maybe because Paul is different. And, and again, I think... I think John loved what Paul reflected back to him because you look at Paul, Paul loves John so much and thinks the world of John, mm -hmm. like for all that John thinks that he's nothing and falling down. I think that Paul never thought that, you know? No, absolutely not. No. So that like all, John's um, doing all of this to be seen and Paul's like, I see you. I don't, he doesn't need that. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it doesn't make yeah. sense to him. Yeah. I think Paul just thinks, you just need to, you know, get your head down and work, do some work. <laughs> work is the answer. Uh, work is the answer. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, to wander aimlessly is... <laughs> I can't remember what very, it is now. Very unswinging. Isn't very it? unswinging. Unswinging. No, unswinging, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How 60s is that? I love it. Yes. I think that's the conundrum is John's doing all of this because he wants to be appreciated and seen as an equal and amazing. And Paul's like, he doesn't understand it because he thinks that already. I suspect yeah. maybe later in life, Paul comes to realize that he should have told John because there's such a burden on Paul. Like Paul seems to regret so much not telling John he loved him. So I don't yes. know if it's, that he at some point realized that I should have told him that would have helped, you know? Yeah, because he tells him that, you know, he's still the, the big the big guy, the boss. Yeah. But that's not what John needs, you know. He needs something on a deeper level, maybe. Yeah, I mean, that he, John knows that he's got a certain amount of weight with the gang. That doesn't help him. John wants to be seen as, like, a genius. And he wants Paul to say, I love you, I need you. Yeah, I think, you know, you're, yeah. you're the greatest. Yeah. If you look at, if you look at the song, Look at Me, you know, I wish there was a demo of that one. There is a demo, but it's from later in the, the summer, I think. 
after he's with right. Yoko, but he says he wrote it in India. And I just, the idea of like him wanting to be seen potentially by Paul, like he's writing, if he's writing it in India, it's not, he's not writing it to Cynthia. And this, this question just, you know, who are we? And he says here, nobody knows, you know, just you and me, you know, but that, yeah. that's a little bit the, the point that they, it, it, it's something very intimate to be seen by somebody and to feel like maybe that person doesn't see you or doesn't feel that way about you anymore or doesn't see your greatness anymore is so, it would be shattering. It would be really hard. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's definitely an India song just because of the, the, the the finger picking style yeah, that they yeah. learn out there and it's uh but lyrically yeah he could have changed he could have changed who are we you know after he met yoko he could have kind of tacked that on but i think it was i think it's probably there and it's probably you know for paul um it's just this this it's an identity crisis you know it's not feeling that what use am I? Yes. What, um, what am I here for? You yeah. Know, I think that maybe that feeds into trying to save the world after that. I think you know? so. I think so. It's like it gave him purpose. It's like, well, if I'm doing this, I have a reason for being here. And I think that made them feel yeah. really good. Both of them got the feedback of doing something that mattered and could change the world. Yeah, because maybe you know because of yoko he didn't think that uh she loves you in a hard day's night was meant anything or was important yeah when in fact they would have had much more impact than yeah uh, you know uh you know it's a shame that um when john says i've been doing help pretty good and george talks over him and starts playing uh every little every thing. little thing yeah. yeah because he george uh john talks about that a bit doesn't he and uh, I don't know if there's a, I don't think there's a version of him doing it. It'd be nice to hear that version that he'd been doing. It's really interesting. Like help is so important to him. He mentions it yeah. twice. He he mentions it there. They ignore him. Then he does the joke version of it when he makes fun of it, and then he complains mm -hmm. about it throughout the seventies. You know the fact that you know he didn't like the version of it. It's like yeah. again, it's this idea of not being seen. You know, like in Paul in the 80s is like, oh, maybe he was actually crying for help. But it is yeah. interesting that John wants to bring that one back. It's really meaningful to him. Yeah. 
and I mean, there's nothing ambiguous about it either. And I guess he thinks it's just a bit too jolly, you know, a bit too. Uh, upbeat. He would rather it was a kind of yeah. He would rather it was a kind of or a Dylan-y thing, or you know, a your blues type thing. Yeah. The People... way things are presented is quite important to him. You're right. How it's presented, you miss the, the actual cry for help in the yeah. song because it's so bouncy, you know? Yeah, yeah. But he yeah. still wants to communicate that. Yeah, because um, he still feels the same, maybe, and he feels that maybe the message was missed. Yeah, I think he does. And maybe, you know, I, I articulated it as well as I could then. I can't do yeah. any better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Let's see if you guys hear me this time. Yeah. <laughs> but it's yeah. it's the same thing, like, uh, I never could speak my mind. I think, like, he wants to do help, and we know this because he, he complains about it in the 70s. But then he, when he plays it to Paul, he makes it into a joke, you know? And, of course, Paul loves yeah. it, and George loves it when <laughs> he's joking. You know, that's the John they love. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But every little thing is a Paul song, actually. Like, they, that's the thing is that George does champion, like, get back. Let's make it a single. Let's do every little thing. That's a Paul song. You know, he was thinking about the long and winding road. You know, he's, he's thinking about Paul's songs. Oh, yeah. When they were doing anthology that George started playing, immediately started playing one of Thinking yes. of Linking or, something, or one of those ones. Yes, that's right. Exactly. And then there's another bit where Paul is talking about India and he's saying about they used to walk down to this cinema or something and George is completely ignoring him because he's playing I Will on the, oh, on the ukulele. He? Yeah. Oh, I love that. I didn't notice that. I Will is such a great song. It's such a lovely song. It's a lovely song because I love the way he, he sings the bass. Yeah. The bass part. It's amazing. I think the only thing that's wrong with Let It Be and The Longer Minded Road is the fact that John's playing bass on it. I think if they've got Billy to play piano and uh, Paul to play the bass, it would have been. Yeah. If it had been on another album where they would have been able to track stuff, you know. Yeah. They're just a bit, they're just a bit thin sounding, a bit ploddy. As Paul keeps saying, it's a bit ploddy. It's because you're not playing the bass. <laughs> because, because he, he, you can't imagine Paul playing the bass and singing those songs no, because they're piano songs. No, definitely song. not. Yeah. Exactly. He's got to be connected to his baby, his piano. Yeah. But so maybe they should have got um, Magic Alex to invent a piano-bass <laughs> hybrid. <laughs> oh, John did write a song with Magic Alex, one of the comfort people. What's the new Mary yeah. Jane? Oh, God, it's awful. Um, he, uh, is he a comfort person or is he just kind of a... Yeah, a comfort person, yeah. Maybe not emotional support, but definitely because there's no other reason to have him around, I don't think. I think he was amusing. I think uh, Pete Shotton's a comfort person for John. Yeah. Who is Paul's yeah. comfort person? Oh, he doesn't really have one. His family, I guess. He's got his family and he Martha? doesn't need one because he doesn't really need one because he... Um, because he had so much support growing yeah. up. Yeah. Um, that gave, that, that's with him all the time. Yeah, it's true. I've often talked about family being something between John and Paul, but it is something like if you're very close to somebody and they've got this full network behind them, 
you know, and you want it just to be YouTube, it would just play a role in your relationship. And Paul's so devoted to family. Um, apparently, John used to always stay with Paul once his aunt left in, in Liverpool. So there was a while when John was a regular visitor. When, whenever Paul went up, this is according to Paul's stepsister. So like in 66, 67, he'd always go and stay with Paul when they'd go to Liverpool. Uh, Jim's new house, you're talking about? Yep. Ah, okay. I mean, everybody seems to say lovely things about him. Yeah, I like it when they're in the pub. In the, um, is it the James Paul McCartney film? When um, they're yep. in the pub with all of his relatives and Paul's having to catch a bit of money off Jim. <laughs> you know what I love about that scene? I love that scene. Um, yeah, me too is that Linda looks so cute. Paul often referred to her as being really cute. And it was always like, she looks quite tough and strident. You know, like she's not comfortable on film and being interviewed. She's always a little bit defensive, kind of like chin up. Yeah. And when you see her in Let It Be, she's so cute. And she was, I found her really sweet in that too. Like she just, you can see that yeah. side of her. Yeah. I love that bit because it's pure... McCartney, isn't it? It's, it's just, so uh, McCartney. 500 uncles. <laughs> and doing a, doing a sing song too. <laughs> sing song, beer everywhere, smoke everywhere is great. Apparently, John watched it and thought that was really embarrassing. Definitely one of my highlights of that. Very cute. Well, because uh, the equivalent would have been John just sitting with his auntie. <laughs> <laughs> she tells him off. With a couple of cats walking around. Yes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So you said you enjoyed uh, some of John's guitar playing. What about uh, Paul's bass? Oh, he's just, he's just the best. He's, it's, I, 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 and the thing is, I don't really understand what he's doing a lot of the time. I like to listen to the, the isolated bass part to um, Hey Bulldog. Mm. Oh, no, yeah. Uh, yeah, Hable's talk. It's insane. Mm. It hits every single note on that thing. And none of it makes sense, but it's just, you put it in the track and it's fantastic. I love the way he, uh, he did a YouTube thing years ago now. How to play bass with Paul McCartney. I thought, brilliant. Oh, yeah. And it's just this three chord. Oh, my God. <laughs> He's, it's like him talking about songwriting. It's the worst, or his piano lesson. It's the worst. Yeah, because it's it's natural to him. He doesn't know what he's doing. He just knows that he's doing it. But he just the way he can just anchor a song, and I always say his bass line is quite um, like a brass instrument. I hear him play stuff sometimes. And it's like oh, that's kind of what the uh, it's like a brass pass almost. Interesting. Um, well, his father, maybe, you know, his father's yeah. influence. He doesn't, he just, he's not content to just play along. Um, it has to be um, something more. And I don't think, and he never takes over. I don't, I mean, George, I think, said about something that it was maybe a bit much, but it's always what the song needs, I think. Yes, and it is the secret sauce. And his harmonies are just fantastic. His harmonies on um, the Let It Be album and on Abbey Road, I think, 
just great. Because he, he doesn't go high, he goes low. And it's just tough. He had the toughness, which is not something that you really hear much about McCartney, I guess. But what do you mean his, by that? His bass playing and his uh, harmonies add muscle, especially mm. George's songs, which are quite slight in the way that they're presented. Um, he really beefs it up. Yeah, you know, when he was interviewed in 1970, he talked about like not, I, I forget what the exact words were, but he didn't, he was like, I don't like cute. And it's interesting that he sort of got that sort of um, association with cutesy when he was like, I don't like that. He said in the article, he's like, the only thing that should be cute are babies. I don't like my music cute. And, yeah. you know, anyway, which, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, but the rest of the album is is not cute. But um, what do you think of Ringo's playing? Oh, he's wonderful. I've never seen anybody drum like Ringo. And um, I'm, I'm, maybe it's the same with what I was saying about Paul's bass playing in the Beatles. Um, but... Uh, Ringo, he's not. He doesn't. He doesn't just keep the beat. Oh, you know, if they're doing an old rock and roll song, you know, he, he'll do that. But yeah. he plays off the vocal. I love that. I think that's. Uh, he does it in a, a day in the life. He does it really well. No, it's so and good. He. Um, he, you know, uh, you can see that sometimes he is being told how to play or what to play by Paul. Uh huh. Um, but he always knows exactly what Paul's talking about. I love the way that they reference old songs and that's how they can explain themselves. Yeah, me uh, too. But um, his playing is just is so empathetic. And, um, you know, he, he, he's got a light touch, but he can also really smash him. Um, but he's fantastic. He's it would, be a bit, it would be a bit weird if he was heavy in that you can see in that environment if Ringo, like Ringo was how he had to be. I went to see McCartney, um, friend of mine, uh, bought me tickets, uh, took me for my 40th birthday, I think it was. And uh, I did not enjoy it at all. Oh no. Because it was just a big rock. I, I'm not... It's, it was just too. It was too rock, you know. It was mm. too full, and I thought it was a bit too much for those songs. Mm. Uh, did a few quieter ones, which I really enjoyed. But um, yeah, that's that's kind of that's the difference, I think. Um, with Ringo, it would be a different gig. I feel like Paul's always trying to counteract the image of him, you know, with some of those shows. I saw him. Um, in uh, Coachella in 2008 and it was it was amazing actually it was an extremely long show but and he played a lot of wings so it was heavier but it was very authentic and you know it wasn't like a big show because it's a festival it just sounded amazing and he was also very emotional on that night I think it was the day that Linda had died like if you you know and he, he referenced it constantly and so he was very emotional, but it was it was a really incredible show, you know. 
it's just a sound for me because I, I I think it was two thousand and eight. It was just it was just the sound. It was just too full on for me. Um, I mean, I don't like big gigs anyway. And and on the way on the train on the way down, I was thinking it was going to be more like a you know, Royal Festival Hall gig where it would be a low key band and he would have his piano and um. But that's what he should do. Like that would have been. Oh my god, yeah. that would have been amazing if you would have done that. Behind all this noise, uh, you know, it's not noise. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know this this kind of volume, uh, uh, and um, because that's the Beatles songs. That that's not really what they are. It's not, and it's interesting when you mention this because, again, I think personally, I think Paul has been battling this. You know like not rock and roll, you know, who's kind of depositioned as, you know, pop and not full rock. And I think that when he does tours like that, he's kind of countering that, you know, he plays Helter Skelter and he plays some of his to sort of give legitimacy that he was, but we're kind of in a new era where I don't think that matters as much. It's just like, just bring out your beautiful songs and play them, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just so weird. Like for twenty years, he was almost a figure of a figure of fun. It's astonishing, you know. When I was um, a teenager in the late eighties and the nineties, he was um, nobody took him that seriously. It's astonishing when you think of, think about that now. Oh and yeah, I think, yeah. Um, but you know. He has been treated appallingly. A lot of the view of them stems from the breakup, unfortunately. Yeah, just a couple of sources as well. Yeah. Uh, if I were to ever advise Paul, other than you know telling him to probably go and do some gigs, that would have freaked them out. It would be that don't go and hide in Scotland and not talk to the press for two years, you know, because you'll pay for it for the rest of your life, you know? Yeah, yeah. and it's, um, it's one of the rare occasions when he hasn't doesn't seem to have thought it through normally he can see things that are going to happen yeah he can occupy past present and future unlike anyone i've ever seen he's he can talk about the past like everyone and then he's um you know in the present he's um uh he can organize and he can write and uh, and do all that stuff but he also seems to be able to know what's going to happen I think about that, you know, wouldn't it be it'd be silly in fifty years if uh Oh my god, yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, if we're talking about Yoko and an amp, yeah. I I personally think at that time wasn't in a position emotionally to talk to the press and I think he probably leaned on Linda and you can see Linda's go to place is just don't explain yourself. Or maybe it's you don't need to explain yourself. Yes. That's that's more it. You don't owe them. Yeah. Yeah. You know how we were talking about George and kind of killing the buzz of the mystery of whatever happened between John and Paul? Um, I think George was spiritual and got a lot from his meditation and study. Um, I think George needed that. Like John's got his comfort person and Mm -hmm. he's got heroin and Paul's like a pot maniac and he's got Linda and his family. 
I think George needed meditation. Like George apparently chanted like crazy after the Beatles broke up, really got into the, you know, the Hare Krishna. Krishna. And that's apparently incredibly good if you've got anxiety. So I think that, you know, George had a lot of anxiety, you know, that he was dealing with through, you know, that he loved it for its spiritual benefits, but also for his own sanity. I think he needed that. They must have, um, I mean, George had a pretty good family support as well, I think. Uh, But it must have hit them all really hard. You know, Ringo was drunk for 12 years or something afterwards. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I was a kid, every time he was on telly, chat shows and stuff, he'd be hammered. Maureen Um, talks about a time when he'd like almost tried to cut his throat. Wow. That's what I mean. Like, yes, Paul went through a bad time, but Paul also looks pretty damn happy, you know, within a couple of years. Not to say that he had it easier. I just think they all struggled. Because, yeah, they did. But Paul works, you know. Yeah. George had his cars and his uh, garden, you know. Ringo made his films and Paul just works his way through stuff. But he's lucky because I don't know when Paul's working, how much is that play for him? I'm sure some of it's hard work. Yeah, you know, um, I guess the work is finishing stuff and recording yeah. stuff. Um, but it all comes out of his playing, which is what he does when he's not doing anything else. And, and that's because that's kind of what I do. If I, if I, um, I don't have days off, you know. I like to yeah. make stuff, collages, or, or um, make music, or that's what I do for fun. Yeah. As well as work, you know. So he always had that, and that uh, sustained him, gave him nourishment. And whereas the others, it was more of a, you know, putting the brakes on, I guess, and suddenly being and suddenly being outside of this bubble that they've been in for, you know, a decade or more. Yeah. It's really tough. It's like when you see. Over here, you see footballers who, um, when they retire, they retire quite young, you know, uh, mid thirties, and all of a sudden that buzz is gone. Yeah. And a lot of them just hit the bottle and yeah, or, or start gambling and because they've lost that buzz. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm sure at some point you need a relief from it because it's so high pressure, but. The, the fact that they were this family, I think, you know, it must have been, it, I think it was incredibly hard on Paul because of the three to one. And I think he probably felt you know, a little bit, I don't know, excluded. Um, and yeah. I think that probably deeply wounded Paul. But I think, you know, Paul drove a lot of the, the Beatles. I think the other three probably, they all missed yeah, that. I, I think that they thought that, the three to one thing was legitimate because they thought that he was kind of taking over in the studio. Yeah, yeah. They um, needed to do that to equal, yeah, to bring him down a peg. Yeah. But it was the wrong thing to do, you know. Yeah. It's such a big thing that they did, you know. It's such a it's such a huge, huge thing that they did. And so there was really no coming back from, I guess. Yeah, well, that's the Liberty Bell. I don't think people have given enough, I don't know, thought to how brutal that would have been when he was being, like, forced to sign. 
you know, and yeah. what, what that would have felt like. I mean, how awful. Yeah. And when, um, you know, he's, and they wouldn't let him leave the label. Yeah. <laughs> so George says to him, you'll stay on the fucking label, Harry Krishna. Yeah. <laughs> and puts the phone down. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah, because the thing is, is that none of them actually wanted to be completely separate. I think they, they didn't want to totally separate. It was a good yeah. way to keep it all, you know. And, you know, George, I found an article from 1978 where George, George was like, he goes, uh, Ringo and I are the most keen to reform as the Beatles. No way. He said, uh, he said, Paul's got a million things on and John's in retirement. But, you know, Ringo and I would do it. So, well, you know, I always thought that it was George that was uh, would always be the sticking point. I know it's like everything we know is wrong, you know, when you yeah. dig into <laughs> it, you dig into it. And I'm sure Paul and, and John were considering writing together in 80 or 81, you know, or at least mm-hmm. flirting with the idea. So, you know, I'm sure they would have been both on Ringo's album, but there, there seems to have been some back and forth, especially song wise. Um, you know, like I said, starting over, coming up, those two are definitely to each other, in my in my opinion. Um, coming up, okay. Because John loved coming up, didn't he? He did. And I think it's a cool song, but if you look at the lyrics, it's like, you want a love that lasts forever, you know, you want peace, blah, blah, blah. It's all kind of like John's peacenik stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I think, I mean... It could be he's throwing in a few lines to John and otherwise he's just writing a song. But I think that they were flirting back and forth in songs, you know? Yeah. I mean, Yoko has said that since then, that John thought it was time that they get back together at that time. So Yeah, it's been 10 years, hasn't it? I guess, um, I mean, I don't think there's any question that if he hadn't been... uh, if he hadn't been killed, then something would have happened by now. Oh, yeah. But I mean, Robert Rosen reading John's diary and saying that, like, he was surprised by how present Paul was. Like, that was his big takeaway. His big surprise was like, wow, I didn't realize John was so obsessed with Paul. And, mm-hmm. you know, it seems like a lot of it was angry. But I mean, the fact that he's still angry just means he's still hurt, you know. But the thing is, is yeah. that it's not it's not like Paul has become unimportant to him, you know. And, oh, no. no. Yeah, I'm sure vice versa, too. So, yeah, I, th- I think they would have worked it out, which makes it all the more tragic. Yeah, yeah. Because think about all the people that John would have met in the 70s. There would have been no one close to to what he uh, had with Paul. No, nothing. I think, I think that that's what he concluded. And I personally think in 1980, a lot of his interviews he's speaking through the media to Paul. You know, not all of them, but he spends a lot of time talking through what happened in the breakup, you know? And and so he's either just processing it. I think he does that too. Sometimes he just uses like interviews as his psych sessions. But I think he is, I do think they speak through media. And and, um, Ray Connolly said that too, that they often spoke through the media to each other when they couldn't talk through songs in the media, you know? But I think um, that the media thing is interesting because that's another um, that's another way that you're trying to get people to see you. Um, yes. 
yeah, when I used to do interviews in the nineties, I used to just constantly be banging on about my problems, hoping that, hoping that someone would say, "Oh, I know what's wrong with that guy." <laughs> and nobody did. Nobody wrote to you and said, "I can fix you." No, no. I thought maybe if I just lay it all out. Yeah, and that's what John does throughout the seventies. Is he lays it out? Mm-hmm. He he talks about the breakup a lot, which makes me think that he's trying to process it and trying to figure it out both for the interviewer but I think him talking to is he's probably hoping Paul reads it you know that sees that he doesn't know and Paul unfortunately gives very little back to him poor John you know I do feel sorry for John in that regard and that I think John never knows what Paul is thinking because Paul does not put a lot out there maybe in his music yeah um it's just it's just simple conversation, isn't it? It's, <laughs> it seems so easy now, and uh, but I guess that's just the way that humans are. That everything gets so complicated and internal. Yeah. When so many things get in the way of just talking, of just having a simple conversation, uh, whether it's pride or fear or yeah. Definitely. Definitely both of those things. Unfortunately, like if they didn't care for each other so much, it would have been so easy, you know? Yeah. John Green, who was the um, uh, fortune teller of uh, the permanent staff member of John and Yoko, so we could tell them their, you know, their fortune every day. He tells a story of John turning Paul away. I'm sure that hurt Paul's feelings a lot, you know? But in John Green's, I actually believe a lot of what John Green says because nobody knows more what people want to hear than people that are reading, you know, your cards for you. you they know exactly yeah. how to play you, you know, and he was a staff member. So anyways, uh, he, he makes the point that John thought that Paul was getting off on how well he was doing because he was about to start this world tour and that he was just showing up to gloat. And it made John feel really, really bad, you know, right. so that Paul was there just to draw energy from John, that his upper hand of being so successful. And so meanwhile, you know, Paul thinks that John doesn't care. And John thinks that Paul doesn't care and is only using him to glow, you know, and so things get so crazy. Things get crazy, yeah, because Paul is just thinking he's around there to see his mate. Yeah. And to maybe, you know. It's all simple, just patch things up maybe. And uh, whereas with, with John, it's everything is just so heightened and complicated. And <laughs> I do think that's true. I think that John imaginary. is one, I think John is the one that is complicating everything, but Paul really, really, really does not help because he can't communicate emotional things like he'll show up with his guitar rather than just having yeah. a conversation and john complains yeah. about that that he hasn't had a real conversation with paul for 10 years and paul's like what do you mean i showed up with my guitar 10 times you know <laughs> <laughs> something just i don't know john john believed in something and i i think whatever happened happened between john and paul i think yoko was a wedge that separated them because she was so insecure poor Poor, the wives of both, both of these men, you know, they were so brokenhearted about each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's it, you know, Yoko, Cynthia couldn't have, you know, Yoko is so out there. 
she must have been great fun to be with that time, you know. Yeah. John could just be himself and do whatever they, you know, anything goes. He couldn't have yes. done that with Cynthia. No. I can't imagine Cynthia. Well, maybe. I mean, she said she just left him alone and he would not speak for days. He would take drugs, he'd mm-hmm. wander off. So I think she, but I don't think she was a playmate for him. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. She, yeah. Um, but also, she, you know, she had to, she had to look after Julian. After John died, Paul must have had to go through it all over again. Really. What? You know, the whole breakup thing, the whole, um, you know, up until 1980, there was always a chance that they were going to patch it up and yep. he could move forward in that way. But after John died, I guess, you know, he had to start all over again. Oh. Um, be hurt all over again and didn't he yeah he hasn't had the easiest life haul you know which is weird because that's not what the perception of him is is it no mr easy go lucky you know kind of like has had this charmed life i mean when i think of paul i think of like somebody who's had like a lot of between linda john his mother i mean the breakup Yeah. Yeah. yeah You did one of my all-time favorite write-ups about Ram. I love the fact that you got his swagger and defiance yeah. and kind of joy, like that that combo of those things. You know? Yeah, it's like a, it's like a, a release, like a, he's been emancipated from something. Emancipated, absolutely. Yeah, it's just it's a joy, and um, you know, I still listen to it. I have periods where I listen to it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the songs are fantastic. It's so weird what Ringo said about it, about there not being... A single tune? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. How do you listen to that album and say there's no tunes on it? Yeah. I just, I couldn't believe I'd never heard it before. I couldn't believe that I'd never heard Dear Boy. It's like, what? what's going on? <sighs> I, I'm so resistant to their solo work. Um, it's just, it's so funny. 
and he barks. I love it when he barks. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, Paul in Ram. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, hey, Bulldog, he barks too. Yeah. The lyrics are great. Um, he just covers all bases. It makes me feel free. It makes me feel free and energized. It's not defensive either. Um, it's a very positive defiance. It's a very positive album. Yeah. You've got the most talkative little cat. Oh, she's unbelievable. She's so needy at the minute because um, she's quite old and she can't see us and she thinks we've abandoned her. Oh, the same and with my dog. She walks around the house. Oh, right. my dog can, yeah. can't see or, or hear either. She's so happy now. <laughs> <laughs> she sounds so cute. Well, thank you for all this time. This has been like such a great conversation. This has been so enjoyable. I loved your insights. Fabulous. It was, thank it was you. super fun. I really enjoyed it. I really, I love the podcast. I really do. Great, great. Thank you. Well, that it's, means a um, lot. That means a lot. It really, it really elevated watching Get Back with all that context behind it. Thank you. Thank Andy, you for thank all you. of this. Come back again sometime when you want to talk about Wings or uh, the Elvis Costello <laughs> Okay. Okay? Yeah. Okay. Well, have a no, great day. No. Thank you. Here we go again. The morning breeze. The moon bequeaths its jewels. And I got fooled again You'll never make it The words keep snaking round And the morning is a baby Full of love and light And expectation But I just can't fake it and that concludes my chat with the brilliant and lovely Martin Carr. I want to thank Martin for being so candid about his experience and so thoughtful and amusing about the Beatles. Before I go, however, I do have a few odds and ends to address, and I also have a host postscript. First, I want to correct something that we said in the episode. We mentioned the Beatles joking about sleeping at Ringo's house prior to the concert on the roof. It was actually a joke about sleeping at George's house. And I'm not sure whether it was a joke or not, <laughs> and whether they slept there or not, but it was very cute and very amusing, whatever the case. And of course, it was John that mentioned it. Second, in this episode, Martin and I returned again and again to John's mindset at the time of Get Back, and we honed in on what might have been going on with him. I don't want this to be mistaken for the idea that John is to blame or that his issues were more significant than Paul's or George's or Ringo's. I'm sure they all had fears and insecurities. The only reason we focus on John's issues is he is driving so much of the volatility. And he talked about his feelings repeatedly after the breakup. So because John drove the action, we are focused on him. And because he talked about his feelings, we're able to hypothesize what may have been going on with him. Third, I want to point something out. McCartney can feel hurt and believe that Lennon is leaving. And John can be playing games and planning nothing of the sort. Both of these things can be true. 
In other words, just because Paul believes or fears that John is going to leave doesn't make it true. I keep pointing out that John might have been exploiting Paul's fears as a way of gaining power. It's the same as India. John's hurt and fear of Paul leaving him doesn't make it true. John could have believed that Paul's departure meant that he was going to leave John, and Paul could have been planning nothing of the sort. Somebody's beliefs or feelings does not necessarily mean that they are true. And as a reminder, I refer to India because John did date the end of the Beatles in one interview to Paul and Ringo leaving India. So I say this based on John's own words. Fourth, I want to pick up on Martin's point about how much fun Yoko must have been for John. I don't think I mentioned this enough, but it's an important point. Yoko would have been really fun for John. Nothing was too crazy or out there for Yoko. In fact, perhaps the more out there it was, the more she liked it. Yoko framed everything as art, which enabled them to make up their own rules, which I'm sure that John loved. This enabled John and Yoko to do things that were sometimes nutty, and sometimes important, and sometimes both. But it looks like they had a ball doing it, at least at first. It was probably so freeing to John to have someone who was willing to go along with all his impulses. It must have been exhilarating to have had a partner who was willing to do anything. And that goes for her as well. Certainly McCartney was not willing to do that. He himself has said this repeatedly, that he would not jump off a cliff with John, nor did he want to. Yet he admired that about John. I'm not sure McCartney gives himself enough credit. He does take huge leaps within the creative sphere, but he seems less willing to do so in the personal sphere. I suspect Paul's unwillingness to jump off cliffs was an underlying tension between Lennon and McCartney. I also believe that McCartney's firm boundaries did not necessarily reflect a limit to his love or devotion to John. But it may have seemed like a betrayal to John that Paul was only willing to go so far with him, that there was a limit, that Paul was his own person capable of succeeding on his own. That may have seemed scary to somebody like John. Better to have a partner who was in on everything and fully accepting of everything. In fact, John discussed this with Barry Miles on the 23rd of September. He said that Yoko said, I love you for what you are, whatever it is. And then he said, I respected her genius. For her to love me was the answer then. She wouldn't have loved a dummy, which I'd begun to think I was. So Yoko's act of seeing John and accepting John seems to have been pivotal. And it's lovely that Yoko said that to John. It's beautiful that she was accepting of him and he of her. I want to highlight this because it's a big deal and I don't do it enough. And yet, just because John had a new romantic partner doesn't mean that his relationship with Paul was diminished or erased, although I suspect that Lennon hoped it would be. Similarly, I don't think Paul's relationship with Linda erased his bond with John. I keep hitting on this point because I think this is one of the mistakes in the Beatles stories to assume that their romantic partners obscured, erased, or diminished the love and affection they had for each other. All these relationships can exist at the same time, and I truly believe they did. Songs like How Do You Sleep and Dear Friend reflected how much they impacted each other, and their musical conversation 
didn't end with these songs. It continued throughout the 70s. In our conversation, Martin recounted his own experience with his bandmate, believing they had a sympathetic connection and being disappointed to learn it was not reciprocated. Martin characterized it as one of them being stuck while the other moved forward. And we hypothesized that something similar could have happened with Lennon and McCartney. Personally, I think this conclusion is a little harsh and perhaps incorrect, both with Martin and his partner, as well as in the hypothetical case of Lennon and McCartney. Maybe John wasn't stuck. Maybe he was simply more romantic about the depth of their bond. And so he expected more from McCartney. And he may not have been wrong. If we look at it a different way, maybe John was simply more open to the concept of a bigger love among creative partners. Perhaps he was the first to conclude that they were soulmates. It seems that later in life, McCartney has come to accept this view, and now he often characterizes their creative partnership in this way. So maybe Lennon was more enlightened, or maybe his boundaries were just uh, less defined. But how lucky was Paul McCartney that John Lennon wanted to be so close to him? How highly Lennon must have thought of McCartney? Of course, on the other hand, maybe Lennon simply expected too much and trusted too little. Maybe McCartney didn't understand Lennon's challenges and beliefs and fears because he thought the love and commitment went without saying. So perhaps there was simply a misunderstanding about commitment. Certainly Lennon seems to have felt hurt, rejected, and betrayed in some way. And it seems that John's actions following the breakup were designed to show the world and perhaps his other partner how powerful an artist he was. It seems that he was determined to prove how lucky McCartney had been to have had John's attention and devotion. And yet Lennon was lucky too, for he was wildly needy and reactive. And yet despite all of his shenanigans, despite trying to bury his partnership with McCartney, telling Rolling Stone that they had stopped writing together in 1962, despite telling the world that he no longer believed in what they had built together, despite publicly declaring that McCartney was nothing but a pretty face writing Muzak, Despite all this, in Paul, John had a partner who never actually turned his back or gave up on him. In Paul, he actually had somebody who never abandoned him. So in the end, they were both right to believe in their bond, which I believe was still there in 1980, and which seems to be alive with Paul even today. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving it a five-star rating or review or give it a shout out on social as it helps other people find the podcast. I will be back with some other incredible episodes very soon. Thanks again. Take care. Bye. 
came to you for comfort You sent your messenger A one-way ticket, no return that we were family. 